Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kidshanu mimitzvotav, who sanctifies with his commandments and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Baruch Adonai, Torah le'amo Israel. Amen. Chapter 20. Abraham journeyed from there to the region of the south and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, Sarah's wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are to die. Because the woman you have taken, moreover, she's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, O oh my Lord, will you slay a nation even though it is righteous? Did not he himself tell me she is my sister? And she too herself said, He is my brother. In the innocence of my heart and the integrity of my hands have I done this. God said to him in the dream, I too knew that it was in the innocent of your heart that you did this, and I too prevented you from sinning against me. That is why I did not permit you to touch her. But now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, be aware that you shall surely die, you and all that is yours. Abimelech arose early the next morning. He summoned all his servants and told them, all these things in, in the ears, and the people were very frightened, I bet. One of the reasons, just as a side here, one of the reasons they were frightened is because they could see the smoke rising from the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then when they saw Avram, Avraham and Sarah coming, they thought, are these the, angel, the two angels that had been there and are now coming here? And then with everything going on, when it says that they were, uh, they were frightened, this is what it means. So it says, Then Abimelech summoned Abraham and said to him, what have, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you? So arrogant. How have I sinned against you that you brought upon me and my kingdom such great sin? Deeds that ought not be done have you done to me. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did such a thing? And Abraham said, Well, because I said... There is no fear of God in this place, and they will s slay me because of my wife. Moreover, she is indeed my sister, my father's daughter, though not my mother's daughter, and she became my wife. Now, this is a stretch, but we're going to get to that in a second. And so it was when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, Let this be your kindness, which you shall do for me, to wherever place we come, Say of me, she's my brother. So Abimelech took flocks and cattle and servants and maidservants and gave to Abraham, and he returned his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you see fit. And, and to Sarah he said, Behold, I, I love this because it's, it's actually Abimelech being sarcastic. He says, Behold, I give to your brother... <laughs> A thousand pieces of silver. The sages bring down he was being sarcastic when he said that. 
kind of a little backhanded, this is your brother. You told me he was your brother, so here's a thousand pieces of silver for your bro. Behold, let it be for you an eye covering for all who are with you and to all who will vindicate you. This is also a kind of a play on words where on the one hand he's saying, let this be recompense so that everybody knows since I'm giving it to your brother that it's not for any other reason I'm giving you money, but rather to vindicate you. And also let your brother buy a proper covering for you so that no one looks at your beauty and does what I did. And all that's wrapped up in this statement. Because evidently, Sarah was extremely beautiful. But she was 90 years old. The reason she was beautiful is because when Hashem had come with the two angels to tell her that she was going to give birth to a boy, and she laughed and said, God actually restored her back to the days of her youth. So that's, that's what's going on here. So it says, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his, his wife and his maids, and they were relieved. For Adonai had completely restrained every orifice of the household of Abimelech because Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Now, when it says every orifice, it means literally every orifice. The people could not relieve themselves. They could not do anything. Some couldn't hear. I mean, everything was shut off. That's uh, drastic. You know, if you pray the, the prayer, uh, the Asher Yatsar prayer that we pray after we have utilized the facilities, that prayer talks about that, that we are a miracle. We are a miracle. <laughs> Sorry. Um, in the afterlife, I'll be a great singer. That's a, that's a deal. Um, but we're, we are, we're, we're full of, of channels and cavities, and yet we don't leak. Most of us. We don't leak out. I mean, really, it's a miracle, right? You would think that we would, that, that, right? That's what the sages thought. That's why they wrote, the, wrote this prayer. But it does say in there that if one of them, if one thing was stopped up, we would not even be able to stand before Shem even for one hour. Now, the reason I bring this up is because that prayer is a prayer that's often said when praying for somebody else to receive a healing. Now, you might think to yourself, what in the world would the, pardon the expression, the bathroom prayer, it's not, that's not what it's called, but we're just going to refer to it as that. Why would you pray the bathroom prayer with respect to praying for somebody to receive a healing? Well, for two reasons. Number one is brought down by Rombell, who says that when, when we do something that everybody does, and it's so mundane, oftentimes when we take care of our needs like that, we don't even think about it, which is part of the problem. But when we utilize the facilities, and once that is completed, we actually take a moment and thank God that we had the ability to do that. That's a big deal. Because when you can thank God for something that is so mundane and so base that every human being, in fact, every animal has to, and yet we don't even think about the fact, what if you couldn't? 
Well, I can tell you it wouldn't, it wouldn't be long before you and I would be dead. It's just a matter of hours, okay? That's number one. Number two is that Scripture brings down, and the sages point out, that this is the first time that Abraham, that anybody in Scripture, anybody, the first time that they prayed and brought a healing. First time in Torah. First time in the Bible. That somebody prayed and a healing came. So Abraham prayed and a healing came. What did he pray? God opened up their orifices. So the, the Asher Yetzar prayer is all about God thank you that we have these open orifices. And it had one of them be blocked, we would not be able to stand before you. So thank you, that's coupled with healing. Why? Because of what happened here in this story. Now... Abraham brings down, or he's, he's, he's trying to vindicate himself. It's really kind of a weak argument. Because the um, uh, Abimelech says, listen, how could, you, how could you do this to me? How could, you, how could you put me in this position where I would be, um, you know, taking your wife? Now, first of all, Abimelech, of course, is without excuse because he had a little... Uh, he had a little ring going on. That as people came through the royal gate, he, was, he had his agents looking out to see if there was any pretty girls coming. He didn't care if they were married or not married. If they were married, that's no problem. He's just going to kill you. That solves <laughs> You married? Yes. Bam, he's dead. No, you're not married anymore. That's problem solved. Right? That's, that, was his, that was his scam. But he was pretending to say, well, I wouldn't have taken her if I'd have known she was your wife. Of course, Abraham knew otherwise. Now, when they went to, when they went to Pharaoh down to Egypt, he had gotten permission from his wife to, to, to run the scheme, to say that you're my sister. Which, by the way, was in fact a lie. This time, he didn't ask her permission and, the, and he's, the sages kind of rebuke Abraham for this because Sarah didn't, maybe would not have gone with it this time because of what happened last time. But nevertheless, he said, tell him you're my sister. And, and actually, the, uh, the, the uh, sources bring down that he had issued Sarah a, a get, a bill of divorce, so that... Should something happen, she would not be guilty of adultery, okay? Because a married woman who uh, gets involved with another man is guilty of adultery. So she, he didn't want that to happen. The, the issue is, is that God did not accept the get because the get was given. A get is a bill of divorce in Hebrew. was only given because Abraham was scared. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, because as we go through the book of Breshit, which is also referred to as the book of Asher, the book of, of the upright, we hear these wonderful stories about these wonderful characters like Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all these different, not, not to be limited to the book of Genesis, but throughout the whole Bible, we have great heroes like David and Solomon and uh, Samson and all these great people, right? Sometimes we forget that they're human beings. Like Elijah, for instance. Elijah has the 450 prophets of Baal slain. 
it's so, uh, it's, it's so powerful. And then when he finds out that Jezebel wants to kill him, he's running like a scared 13-year-old girl. And he runs, by the way, all the way from what is practically just outside of modern-day Haifa. He runs and flees all the way to Mount Sinai. Now you, some people didn't know that. You thought, well, he just ran. He ran to a cave down the street. No, he was running and running and running. And he even stopped overnight. He woke up and an angel was cooking him breakfast. He was so scared, he didn't even acknowledge that the angel was cooking him breakfast. Now, I don't know anybody here has an angel cooking breakfast. Well, my wife cooks me breakfast, but. Uh. This is how you do it. <laughs> That's right. But really, he wakes up. He's so scared. The angel says, here, eat something. He says, thank you. That's, he's, he's ready to go. He's ready to eat and get out. But he runs all the way. So listen, Abraham is scared, and so he says in his fear, just say you're my sister. Now, he goes to this rigmarole. Well, she really is my sister, although she's, not the, she's the father, uh, daughter of my father, but not, not my mother. And actually, Sarah is his niece. But, in theory, a grandchild can be considered a child. Torah refers to, for instance, he's referring to uh, Jacob. He says, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Abraham is actually Jacob's grandfather, but God refers to him as your father. So that, that's, so Abraham is using that technicality to say, well, she's actually the granddaughter of my father, but that makes her my sister. This is not completely unusual, but sometimes we'll see in Scripture and also in ancient writings where a husband will refer to his wife as his daughter, or sometimes his sister. So, but it's not his sister. So when he says, this is my sister, he in his mind has this technicality, but it's not real. The whole point of me saying this is to illustrate that sometimes you can have great people that do silly things, but we're all humans. We struggle. And it's healthy sometimes to remember that because sometimes we put um, people like this on, on or not just like Abraham, but anybody, any human being, on a pedestal. And then we try to um, rise to that level, which is great. But then when we have our own little struggles and failures, we get depressed and think that we're no good and we want to quit. But just understand, understand that God took people that were imperfect to do great things. We were talking last night at the Arab table about King Solomon. and as King Solomon, we read about this uh, in the Haftarah, about um, King Solomon is going to end up building the, t- the temple and all this. I mean, amazing. Solomon's temple, which is the temple in which the Ruach HaKodesh dwelled, is just amazing, right? And yet Solomon had a lot of failure in his life. One of the reasons he had so much failure is because uh, he had 700 wives and concubines. Now, it's not a slide against women. It's just saying that's trying to keep 700 ladies happy. That's terrifying. <laughs> so he sojourns from, from where he had been. He had been 
around Sodom and Gomorrah, which is obvious from the previous chapter, he sojourns to Gerar. And the question becomes of Abraham, why did he sojourn from Gerar? And um, in, I believe it's Rabbeinu Bakia brings down that the reason he sojourned from Gerar is because Abraham had a mission. And his mission was to reach people, was to be hospitable to people, to bring them in to his tent and teach them about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He. Problem is, is that Solomon and Gomorrah is destroyed. People are avoiding the area. And so there's no more passerbyers. There's no more people that, that are stopping by the tent. Business has uh, collapsed. So he literally is moving to Gerar because he's trying to move to another populated area whereby he can witness, he can bring the message of, of monotheism or the message of the one true God to that area. Another concept, the reason why he moved is because of the situation with Lot and his two daughters. It had, it had brought a stench, a reputation stench. And so he wanted to move away from that and distance himself from Lot. Which, as we spoke a little bit about last week, is also another um, kind of interesting paradox. Because on the one hand, you have this situation with Lot and his daughters, which is considered a great sin and uh, something that Abraham wants to distance himself from. He doesn't want to be associated with his nephew anymore. Lot was actually Sarah's brother. And... Yet, from Lot and that whole ordeal comes Ruth and Naamah. Now, Ruth, we talked about this again last night, Ruth would marry Boaz. She would convert to Judaism, by the way. Ruth is like the, one of the quintessential converts of Judaism. Ruth would marry Boaz. From Ruth and Boaz would, be, would become, or excuse me, would come uh, Obed. Obed would come uh, Jesse. Jesse would come, become King David. King David would uh, take Bathsheba as a wife. That's a whole other story. From that interesting relationship, which uh, happened perhaps inappropriately, came Solomon. Solomon would, one of his 700 and some odd wives and concubines, one of his wives was Naamah who was the daughter of Ammonites who, that came from the second daughter of Lot. From ne his wife Naamah would, would come Rehoboam. From Rehoboam would continue the lineage of Mashiach. So even in that stench, even in that bad situation, that evil situation, that, that sin situation, you, you have, watch this, you have Ruth who came from that, then you have Bathsheba, where David had Bathsheba's husbands uh, conveniently killed in battle. And then, then you had Naamah, who came from Lot. And then you have Mashiach. It's interesting. Do I have all the answers for that? No, I don't. It goes on to say here, talking about the prophecy, because God spoke to Avimelech and in a prophetic vision. And some wonder, you know, we're not really supposed to listen to prophetic visions that come from non-Jews, right? Somebody says, well, I have, the, I have a word of the Lord for you. Your first question is, are you Shomer Shabbos? If they say, what? Just say, no, thank you. 
I'm serious. Because you're probably talking to Balaam. Not probably, you are. Or Avimelech, right? It's not worth it. You might as well go talk to the lady with the crystal ball. I'm serious. Now, the question becomes, though, God does, from time to time, speak to Balaam. Like, God did speak to Balaam, and God did speak to Abimelech, right? Right. That he never, okay, that's true. Let's start there. But the caveat is he never speaks to Abimelech or Balaam to speak to his people. He never goes to the non-Jew and says, thus says the Lord to Israel, to go tell them. That never happens. That's never happened, not one time. You say, well, Balaam spoke a blessing over it. Yeah, because God spoke through his mouth, but, but he wasn't sent to Israel. So no non-Jewish prophet is sent to you. Not on TV, not on radio, not on fake book. Right? So what's the difference between the way in which God speaks to the non-Jew versus speaking to the Jew? What's the difference? Well, it says here, this is from the Midrash Rabbah, Vayera 52.5. What is the difference in prophecy between the prophets of Israel and the prophets of the nations of the world? Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa and the other sages debated this question. Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa said this may be compared to a king who was situated in a parlor room with his friends with a curtain between them. Whenever he wanted to speak to his friends, he would fold away the curtain and speak with them. So too, God speaks face to face, as it were, with the prophets of Israel. But when speaking to the prophets of the other nations of the world, God does not fold away the curtain, as it were, but speaks with them from behind the curtain. Now, I want, I want to pause there and, and bring up Matthew chapter 13. It's the Gospels here. By the way, um, before I do that, I just want to make a quick drive-by reference to, uh, to the book of Mark chapter 12 in verse uh, 18. Because I just happened to notice that when King Shlomo here was uh, reading from it. It says that some of the Sadducees came to Yeshua and they were making an argument about the resurrection of the dead. They were trying to say that it didn't happen. And their sarcastic question was about somebody that had, um, well, let me just read it here. It says, some of the Sadducees came to him and said, who say, who say rather, there is no resurrection of the dead. This, because Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Okay? So they came to Yeshua, who's a, who is the Messiah. They're, they don't believe he's the Messiah because he's a Pharisee. Okay, A Sadducee would never accept a Pharisee as the Messiah. A Pharisee would never accept a Sadducee as the Messiah. So when the Pharisees go to Yeshua to say, hey, are you the Mashiach? Because you know that happened, right? When the Pharisees went to Yeshua and said, are you, are, you the, are you the Messiah? We're just wondering. That would have never happened if he wasn't a Pharisee. Why? Because if he's not a Pharisee, to the Pharisees, he's automatically excluded. Same thing for the Sadducees. So people say, well, I don't believe that Messiah was a Pharisee. The Pharisees did. And I'm just going to suggest, this is just a suggestion, that you, talking euphemistically, 
2,000 years removed, you don't even know what a Pharisee is, you're 2,000 years removed, probably doesn't know as much about who a Pharisee would be versus the Pharisees who were actually there on the scene. In other words, let me put that in more simple terms. If the Pharisee on the scene in the first century said, he's a Pharisee, and then you in 2020, that lack 2020, say, no, he wasn't, I'm going to go with them because you probably don't know what you're talking about. Like, I can spot a Texan. And if somebody comes up to me and says they're born and raised in Texas, I can tell you in five minutes that they're a liar or not. Because I am born and raised here. Okay? But somebody from France probably can't. Even though they read a book about Texas. Right? Right. I got pulled over in Israel. Yes, do not take a ride on red in Israel. Don't do it. It just so happened I had a police officer behind me. So he pulls me over, of course. He just pulls right up to the side of my car. They do things differently there. Roll down the window, and he starts speaking to me in full-on Hebrew. Now, of course, naturally, because, you know, he's like, eh, you know, and I rolled up my window. So I, what I did is, no broken Hebrew, you crazy? No, no. I pulled out my thick, homegrown, pure, true, birth-given Texas accent. I said, I'm sorry, I'm from the United States, and I didn't realize you're supposed, not supposed to take a, I, I don't know, I'm so sorry, forgive me, I'm sorry, I didn't know it. No, you're right, I, and he's, he just looked at me like, man, I can't even understand your English. <laughs> he said, just get out of here, go, go, go. I said, thank you, sir, thank you, bless your heart, love you. <laughs> no, I'm serious, I happened just like that. And so take a ride on red and obey traffic rules. Learn about the traffic rules before you drive there. Anyway, so it says here, um, so he goes on to explain. I won't read the whole thing for the sake of time. But he goes on to explain that to these Sadducees that there is a resurrection of the dead. Now, the only people that believed in the resurrection of the dead were the Pharisees. So the fact that Yeshua is arguing for the, for the resurrection of the dead means that he's a Pharisee. The fact that the Sadducees are arguing with him about it because that was their big thing means that he's a Pharisee. Otherwise, they wouldn't have brought it up. All right, you're, that's free. You're welcome. So it says, on that day, Yeshua, this is Matthew chapter 13, on that day, Yeshua left the house and sat beside the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. A great crowd of people was assembled to him, so he went down into the boat and sat in it. And all the people stood on the seashore. He spoke to them at length in parables, saying, The sower went out to sow seed, and as he sowed, some of the seed fell by the road. The birds came and ate it. There was some that fell on rocky places where there was not much soil, and it sprouted quickly because it had no deep soil. When the sun shone, it was scorched and dried up, because it had no root. There were some that fell along the thorns, and thorns came up and crowded it out. There were some that fell on the good soil, and it bore fruit a hundred times, another sixty, another thirty. 
Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Now his disciples approached him and said, Why is it that you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said, Because to you, to you is given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. In other words, to you I speak without the veil. I speak face to face and plainly. He says, For to, to one who has, it will surely be given, and he will have extra. But for one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. For in their seeing they will not see, and in their hearing they will not hear, nor do they even understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Yeshiah who said, Listen well, but you will not understand. Look closely, but you'll not know. Fatten the heart of this nation and make its ears heavy and, and seal it, so that it will not see with its eyes or hear with its ears or understand with its, its heart or repent and be healed. That's a harsh word, isn't it? That comes from Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 9. So I want to look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 9 from the commentary. Now this is where Isaiah rather is being told to go and send. He says, it says in chapter 6 and verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And he said, Here I am, send me. So Isaiah answers the call and Hashem says, Okay, here's the message. And he said, go and say to this people, surely you hear, but you do not comprehend. And surely you see, but you fail to know. This people is fattening its heart, hardening its ears, sealing its eyes, lest it see with its eyes and hear with its ears and understand with its heart so that it will repent and be healed. Now, Yeshua had just said to his disciples, I speak to you face to face, but to them I speak in parables in order to fulfill this verse. Now, it seems a bit unfair. Like, wait a minute. Why would you speak to us clearly and speak to them in parables? It almost sounds like Yeshua is saying, I, me speaking to them in parables is causing them to not be able to repent, to have stuffed up ears and fattened hearts and so on. So it seems like he's picking and choosing, but that's not what's going on. Understand that his disciples at this point is not limited to the twelve. It's limited to everybody who's following him. In other words, everybody who has faith in him. See, when you have faith, that's when the veil lifts. Sometimes we say, well, I didn't believe, but God removed the veil. That's his grace, but it doesn't always happen like that. But this is what the commentary says. He says, go and say to this people, Isaiah is given the instruction for his first prophetic mission. He is to tell the people that although they have heard the words of the prophets, and their words of reproof, they fail to comprehend all that they've been told. Similarly, although they have seen amazing miracles and marvelous wonders that occurred for their benefit, they have failed to recognize that it was God who performed them. That's what Yeshua is doing, right? He's doing miracles for them. He's showing them, but they're not. They've already been shown this before, but they're failing to say, okay, this is God. Alternatively, Isaiah is to tell the people that although they may listen well to his words, they will not comprehend his message because they chose to sin and refused to heed the words of the prophets in the past and rejected their call to make teshuva. 
They deserve, therefore, to be punished, and therefore God will deny them the opportunity to repent. Similarly, because Pharaoh deliberately and repeatedly refused to heed Moses' call to recognize the hand of God, God hardened his heart. So it goes on to say this people is, is fattening, the people is fattening its heart. God continues, it says, to describe the degraded state of the nation and explains that the people ignore the prophets and even God himself. They fatten their hearts, they close their eyes, they shut their eyes because they fear, listen to this, because they fear, they fear that the word of God may reach them and would then bring them to change their ways. Fattening of the heart is a metaphor for insulating the heart so that words of reproof cannot penetrate it. That's what Yeshua is saying. He's saying, listen, these people, they, they want the miracles. They want to hear the words. They want to have all this stuff. But what they're really, they're, res- they're actually they're resisting it because they're concerned that they may actually have to change their ways. So, so he's talking to the, his, his people there. He said, with you, I talk, I talk face to face. Why? Because you want to be changed. You want to be transformed. And therefore, I'm able to speak to you plainly because you're open. We have to put ourselves in a position in our life where we want what God wants for our life. Whatever that is for our life, we want what God wants for our life. Now, another example is given here that's interesting. It says, our sages say, this can also be compared to a king who had a wife and a concubine. When he went to be with his wife, he would go publicly, but when he went to his, his concubine, he would go secretly so as not to publicize the matter. Now, this is going to relate back to people that want to be a Noahide, as we're about to find out. Now, what's a wife versus a concubine? Well, a wife is a, is a woman that is uh, married, obviously, to a man, and she's married to him vis-a-vis a traditional covenantal relationship with a ketubah. There's a ketubah involved. There's a marriage contract. A concubine, which back in, the, back, in the, back in the days here, was permitted, was a woman who was not quite a wife to a man, but he was permitted to her. Now, it wasn't a uh, mistress-type situation. She wasn't allowed to be, to be with anybody else, Okay? Uh, but she was on a lower level. She was basically a wife without a ketubah. That's how it's explained. She's basically a wife without a ketubah. But again, I want to emphasize, she wasn't allowed to, it wasn't like she could just have a bunch of boyfriends or whatever. That wasn't allowed. This is why um, Absalom, one of the things he did in order to rebel against his father is he went with his father's concubine. And that was considered an act of rebellion, one of the many acts of rebellion. The point here is it says that there's a, the concubine has a lesser status. So it says, similarly, the Holy One, blessed be he, appears to the nations of the world only at night. In other words, he goes to them in secret. Why? Because they don't have the same status. When it comes to the prophets of Israel, he goes to them during the daytime. So, for those who want to be uh, Noahides, to be a Noahide means that you're, you don't have any Torah in your life. It means you don't have a ketubah. It means you're like a concubine. Now, the problem with a concubine 
is that, yes, there's a relationship there, yes, all this kind of stuff, but there's no rights, there's no inheritance rights. The children of the concubine don't have any inheritance rights. She herself doesn't have any, any there's no covenantal rights there. So the people of the, of the nations who say, well, I, I want to be a Noahide, I just want to be with Hashem, uh, you know, but I don't want to have any ketubah. Like, well, there's no covenant there. But you've been told there's a covenant, but isn't it interesting that there's no, there's no ketubah? There's no ketubah, there's no covenant. And the Torah is likened to a, a ketubah. Something interesting about this, there's no grace for Noahides. It says here in the Midrash Rabbah, And God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are to die because of the woman you have taken. It says here, from here we learn that there is no requirement for concerning warning Noahides. Now, what does this mean? It means that according to Torah law, before you can be brought up on charges of death, the first thing the court is going to ask you as a Jew is, did somebody, before you committed this infraction, did somebody warn you that what you were doing was liable to the death penalty. Now, if you have a good attorney, your attorney's going to say, say no. And you're going to go, what? Say no. Stupid. Say no. <laughs> and you're going to say, uh, your honors, uh, I did not. And they're going to say, they're going to reprove you, and they're going to rebuke you, and they're going to say, okay, so now you know that this is a death penalty situation don't ever do it again. And that's your warning. That's it. Case closed. You didn't know that, did you? You thought we drug you out into the street and just brutally killed you without even telling anybody. We just reported it on the news. That's what you were told in Sunday school. You were told in Sunday school that the, the, the law of Moses was so brutal if, if, if your neighbor overheard you in your house talking about how you broke the Shabbat last week, that they would just go over there and just open the door and just glock you right and boom, right there, and be like, that's it. No, that's if you're a Noahide. If you're a Noahide, you get no warning. No, no, listen, if you're a Noahide, that, there's no grace. There's no warning. A Noahide has no warning. No one says, you did, I, didn't, you, I didn't, officer, I didn't know you couldn't take a ride on red. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what your accent is like. <laughs> it says here in the foot, footnote, there is a halakhic principle that a court cannot administer punishment unless the perpetrator was first warned that what he's about to do is forbidden and that he will be punished if he does it. The Midrash is saying that the Noahide has no such warning. So people that want to be under the Noahide thing or the Messianic Gentile, same thing. What's well, they're related, not exactly the same, but if you want to be under that, that means you want to be under the no grace policy, right? The no grace policy. Something else, kind of a funny aside, for those of you who travel to the Holy Land. This was our seventh trip. It's not my first time to drive there, so I really am without excuse. Nor is it, <laughs> nor is it my first time to rent a car there, but um, this is kind of a funny little aside um, but previously, I didn't, ha I didn't have a credit card that would cover a, 
car insurance in Israel. There's two places in the world that none of my credit cards, and I have several, would cover cars. Two places in the, in the world, <laughs> Jamaica and Israel. Um, but a couple of years ago, I ended up getting this credit card, and, and lo and behold, it actually did cover um, car insurance for rental cars everywhere. And I was excited about that because if you buy the full-on insurance in Israel, it can be expensive. And so it saves you quite a bit, about half maybe, I don't know. And so I was looking forward to that. I'm like, man, great, I've got a car. So when I was checking out the car, of course, I'm, I'm, um, I'm kind of half dazed because I've been on a plane for like a 1,000 hours. And so, uh, you know, I'm checking out. And the lady's like, oh, you got the insurance? Yeah, great. Okay, great. So, uh, and she says to me, just so you know, you're liable for whatever damages happen, or hopefully none, but whatever damage, you're 100% liable. You have to pay in full on the spot when we turn the car, and then you can just take it up with your insurance later. And uh, I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, saving. I'm thinking, saving me some money. Yeah. And uh, so I get in the car. I'm driving, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, ooh, <laughs> somebody dings my door in a parking lot. I'm paying for that ding, and then I'm gonna have to get it reimbursed. So the whole two and a half weeks in Israel, I'm stressed about the car. And I'm like checking, I'm like looking at, you know, it's, it's parked in a parking uh, lot down below the apartment. And I am get a cup of coffee and I'm just looking at the car. Looking at the car. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't want to pay for this car in full. And then, to make matters worse, I'm talking to my good friend Avi. I'm in his office. And I'm asking him about going to this particular place in the north, which can be a little bit risky. And he's like, you should go. Besides, you got full insurance on the car, go. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I, didn't, I was too embarrassed to say, well, actually it's my insurance. And if the car gets hit by a bazooka, I pay for it. <laughs> Avi just assumed that I paid for full insurance. He's like, who cares? The car blows up. It's you. It's, it's, it's paid for. So uh, it was hilarious. I turned the car in. And they did go over it with a fine-tooth comb, but Hashem's was gracious and it was fine. Buy the insurance. That's the moral of that story. <laughs> Buy the insurance. You don't have to worry about it. All right. One more thing here. <laughs> Little uh, stories you learn. Baruch Hashem. So um, what was going on with, uh, we, we mentioned that Abraham prayed. This is the first time that a prayer like this happened and somebody was healed. I also want to mention that according to the Midrash, Sarah was greater than Abraham. It says that, it says here, Rabbi Akka said, Sarah's husband gloried in her, but she did not glory in her husband. The other sages said she was master over her husband. For in every other instance, is the husband, it is the husband who decrees what is to be done. But God said to Abraham in, in Genesis 21.12, Whatever Sarah tells you, heed her voice. Sarah was a very great woman. She was a very great prophetess. Abraham was who he was because of Sarah. And I can tell you, honestly, I relate to that with respect to Rebetzin. Um, that's who Abraham, that's who Sarah was, that's who Abraham was. And it's interesting because there's a lot of similarities between Sarah and Isaac and Miriam and Yeshua in terms of the virgin birth. There's a part, 
part two, part two of the drosh of Mikael that I want him to share at some point, we're, we're going to work out those details, has to do with this topic. Because when you think about it, if you look at Abraham and Sarah, Abraham gets all the credit, but really on a spiritual level, it's Sarah. She's the highest level. And so I just want to conclude today by reading this portion of the Midrash because we just read about how when Abraham prayed, he healed everybody. But before that was even possible, you have this prayer of Sarah. So the Midrash Rabbah 52.13 says, Because of the matter of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, it says throughout that entire night, Sarah was prostrate on her face in prayer saying, Master of the universe, Abraham left Haran to journey to the land of Canaan because of a promise he received from you. I, however, left on faith. No, you didn't catch that. Y'all like, okay, that's beautiful. That's, that's poetic. No, you didn't catch it. Abraham left because he had a direct communication from Hashem who said to him, Abraham, leave. leave. Sarah only went on the amuna that she had and what she had heard that God had said. Yeshua said, blessed are those, Thomas, who believe and have not seen. You believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who are going to believe and have not yet seen. Sarah says, I'm that girl. You spoke to him, not to me. I left because I heard what you said. Not because I saw what you said. This is what makes our faith in the Torah greater than had we been at Mount Sinai. Because at Mount Sinai, we saw the sounds. But here, we just hear about what they had heard, and we believe. So Sarah says, I'm the girl of faith. It says, and now Abraham is outside the prison while I'm situated in the prison. The woman of faith is in prison. It's her that's going to suffer. I mean, Abraham is suffering to the extent that his wife has been abducted. And, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. But she's about to have to be involved with Avimelech, an, an uncircumcised Gentile. So it says, I'm here in faith because uh, I'm here in prison, rather. It says, the Holy and Blessed Be, he responded to her. All that I'm doing now, I'm doing for your sake. And everyone will say it is because of the word of Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Rabbi Levi said that whole night there was an angel standing there, talking about in front of Abimelech, with a whip in his hand, consulting with Sarah. And if she said, strike, then he struck Abimelech. And if she said, leave him be, then he would leave him be. And why was so much punishment called for? I mean, come on. She's got, there's an angel, he's got a whip. Sarah says, strike him, Lord. And he says, okay. It says, why was so much punishment called for? Because Sarah was constantly saying to Abimelech, I am a married woman. But it says he did not desist from making advancements towards her. You know, it's interesting in this account where Abimelech says, I am innocent. I did not sin with my heart nor with my hands. 
And God replies to him and says, I know that you did not sin with your heart. But, but he leaves out sinning with your hands. And he goes on to tell Abimelech in the Midrash, first of all, you were trying to sin with your hands. But it was I who prevented you. It actually says in the Midrash that he, he co-opted and took over his Yetzirah. Like a rider takes over a horse by the reins. And he says, you actually wanted to sin, but I prevented you from sinning. Which leaves us with my final thought for all of us, is that we need to be in such a humble place that we don't even take credit for our, our not sinning. Because really it's God's grace who enables us not to sin. So that we can't even say to him, look, I'm not, I, I haven't sinned. What we really need to say is, Hashem, you know I wanted to, or you know what I was going to, or you know what I could have, but it was only you who empowered me not to do it. Baruch Abba, Adonai.